Hi, I'm Wilson Gall. And I'm Ellie Roark, and you're listening to Fledgling Theories, where once a month we pick a new piece of bird research and chat about it for a little bit. You can find us on our website at uh, fledglingtheories.podbean.com or on Twitter at Fledgecast. And we've also launched a Patreon page, so if you like the podcast and you want to support us by kicking us a couple of bucks a month, um, you can find that on patreon.com slash fledglingtheories. So today we're talking about an article called Low Fitness at Low Latitudes, Wintering in the Tropics Increases Migratory Delays and Mortality Rates in an Arctic Breeding Shorebird. This is by Reinerkens et al., uh, 2019, in the Journal of Animal Ecology. So conventional wisdom tells us that fitness benefits from long-distance migration should either outweigh or be equal to the cost of the extra flying time and maybe arriving late on the breeding grounds. Isn't that right, Wilson? Yeah. I mean, the simple way to think about it is why make a long migration? The answer would have to be because there's a good reason to. Right. The whole point is that you supposedly gain something extra or break even doing the long migration. And this study is, is seeking to figure out whether that's actually the case. So I love this because I think this is a great example of how you can pose a really clear question and then try to falsify it. So what they've done here is they've taken the conventional wisdom, something that, I mean, if you took an ornithology course in university, this is just what you're taught. I mean, we all know that the only reason to migrate is because you get some benefit and, and migrating is hard, it's long distances, you burn a lot of energy, but you make up for that in something, whether it's better food on the wintering grounds or eventually sort of at the at a population level, you make up for it in reproductive success. Right. And this is true for the, the conventional wisdom applies to all species, not just birds. This is the idea behind migration. And so this study says, great. So we all know that's true. Let's test it. <laughs> Let's just get some data and see if it's actually true. Um, and it's a little bit hard to I think sometimes have the, almost the courage to do that kind of a question because it can feel like you're testing something really dumb, you know? Right, it feels <laughs> like, like we're testing something we already know the it, answer to. Yeah, yeah. And, and to some extent, it's like, why test something that we all already know? Um, but it turns out sometimes when you test something that we all know like that, you find out that maybe it's not so correct. <laughs> right. And that's what this study found, is that this conventional wisdom actually uh, doesn't match up with what we can actually observe in a real bird species here. Yeah, so this study was looking at sanderlings, which is a, a very tiny, very cute little shorebird. If you don't know what a sanderling looks like, I highly recommend Googling them <laughs> and especially watching like a little 15 second clip or something of them uh, playing in the waves. <laughs> yeah, what's, what's really quite cute is the way they run. It's yeah. Not, I mean, they look like a lot of other shorebirds, but they are hilarious little runners on the beach. Yeah, they're really funny. So this study focused on a, a population of sanderlings that breeds in the high Arctic in Greenland. And what's really great about this population is that they all breed in Greenland, but when they migrate to the wintering grounds, they spread out pretty much across the entirety of the coastline of Europe and Africa. Yeah, it's like 100 degrees latitude that they are distributed 
across in the wintering season. So from Greenland, some of the birds go to Scotland, right on the northern tip of Great Britain there. Some of them are in France, some of them are in northern Africa, some of them are all the way down at the very southern tip of Africa. Yeah, which kind of makes this a, a cool test case for testing the benefits of long-distance migration. Yeah, because because you have these birds that are otherwise very similar. They all breed in this small area in Greenland, but where they differ is where they winter and how far they migrate, and they differ by a huge amount. They, they differ in migrating, you know, one or 2,000 kilometers up to 13,000 kilometers for the ones that fly all the way to Africa. And the other thing that's very unusual about this in terms of bird species that you can study is that they cross the equator. So there are other studies that look at this sort of a question, but usually it's with northern hemisphere birds where you have two things that are confounded. There's the distance they migrate. So they breed in the far north and they migrate south. And so there's how far they migrate, but there's also how close they get to the equator. Right. And if you have a, if none of them cross the equator, then you can't pick apart the effect of being closer to the equator where it's warmer and you have more daylight and all these things from the effect of the distance that they fly. Yeah, so exactly. Here, because these birds at the southern tip of Africa are crossing the equator, they're kind of like waving hello to the tropics and they're continuing right on through to the southern tip of Africa where it's essentially a high latitude again. You have yep. all the, the other issues that come along with high latitude. So it's really a, a better test of the distance of migration where you're able to sort of get rid of the effect of the or, or see separately the effect of being close to the equator. Totally, because you have these kind of close, short distance European wintering species, then you have the tropical wintering species that are around the equator, and then the subtropical wintering species in Namibia. So how are they tracking the migration of these birds that, that are breeding in Greenland? How do they know where they're wintering? So they've banded a lot of these birds on the breeding grounds, and they have unique color band combinations and they're, they use observations from something like 2,000 observers who are reporting sanderling, banded sanderling sightings in all these places. And then they also had a field team that went out to a bunch of known wintering spots and looked for banded sanderlings. So these bands are just little plastic rings that they put on the leg of the bird. Yep. And the idea is they put some combination of rings, you know, green, green, orange or something. And then somewhere else at some other time, if you see this bird in your binoculars or in your spotting scope, and you can get a good view of the legs, you can see what color those bands are. You don't even have to catch the bird or anything. You can just see it and you figure out what color the rings were and what order they're in. And then you can sort of report back or get on the website or something and say, hey, I saw this bird with this color of rings. And that tells the, the study authors which bird you saw because they, they have kept records of what color combinations they put on. Which is very cool and it lets a lot of people participate and contribute to a project like this. Now we've talked before about, well, different ways to track migration. We've looked at studies that use little geolocator tags that they put on birds. And those mm -hmm. studies have on the order of 10 or 20 observations. You know, it's very difficult, expensive. You put a lot of tags on, but then you can't get them back because you can't find the birds again. Yeah. We've looked at studies that do ringing where you get very low recapture rates. So if you have to catch a bird, put a ring on, and then catch the bird again later, that's very hard to do. Yep. 
But this, you don't have to catch the bird a second time. You catch it, you put the rings on, then all you have to do is get a, a sight of the bird. Exactly. And so they actually get a, a better um, sort of return rate on this because they're able to see more birds than you could maybe recatch. So I think they said they, they recited over half of these birds or something, maybe even like two thirds. Yeah, and it was, which is in the order of like thousands of birds, like 1600 recitings or something, yeah, I mean, if I'm a, remembering correctly. It's astonishing. They put over 5,000 rings on birds. They, they color ringed over 5,000 birds. And I think they said they had wintering locations. So they recited these birds they had over 3,000 wintering locations. Wow. Yeah. I Pretty mean, cool. It's huge, huge sample size for yeah. this kind of a study because yeah. it's really hard to do. Now, and they had reciting locations from that entire length of the European and African coastline, the entire migratory length of this species, tens of thousands of kilometers. And so when I saw that, when I saw all the places this data is coming from, I mean, it covers Two continents, two full continents. Yeah, it's now, a massive undertaking. Shorebirds, it's a little easier than a terrestrial bird because at least you know they're concentrated on the coastlines, so you don't have to search the interior of continents, but it's still a huge amount of coastlines. So I looked at the author list, and the authors, there are 15 authors, I think, on this paper. So this is, there's the 2,000 people who sent in observations of birds, but then there's also 15 authors on this paper, and here are the countries that those authors are from, where they work. We've got the Netherlands, Portugal, Iceland, Namibia, the UK, France, Germany, and Ghana. So this is a massive international effort, a huge oh, cool. research team. And they have managed to cover the coastline of two continents to study this question. Yeah. It's, it's massive effort. It's yeah. astonishing. And in addition to those colored ring resightings, they also deployed some little like satellite geotracker backpacks on some of these birds. Um, and they deploy, you know, as we have noted with other studies that use these, they deployed something like 50 of them and, and ended up getting back, eight. what, eight, yeah, <laughs> seven, something like that. Yeah, seven or eight. Yeah. So what they're interested in here, of course, is the reproductive success of birds. I mean, the, the reason that a bird would migrate instead of staying on the breeding grounds is that their success breeding in the next year will be better if they go somewhere else for the winter. Right. I mean, that's the only way this can sort of arise evolutionarily, because if, if it's more successful to stay in the same place, then the birds that stay in the same place will have more offspring. Those offspring will also stay in the same place, and pretty soon you'll just have a population that stays in the same place. So there, there has got to be some benefit to migrating, especially when the migration covers two-thirds of the globe and is hugely energetically costly. And, you know, it's, it's not a low-risk or low difficulty thing. It's actually difficult and risky. Yep. Right. So then the question is, how do we measure that reproductive success? And as you can imagine, given the difficulty following individual birds on migration, it would be even more difficult to track both individuals and all their offspring in order to figure out how reproductively successful they were. And so this study uses a couple of, of kind of proxies for fitness. Um, and those include the survival rate of adult birds. So this is basically just, what's the probability that an adult bird will survive to the next year? Yeah. Basically. And in this case, it's on the order of 
85% or something. So for every adult and every year, there's an 85% chance that bird lives to the next year, roughly. Yeah. Kind of. Um, and then they also looked at the age of the first northward migration. So, um, so, so this one's interesting because this is after a bird has reached the wintering ground as a juvenile, the first time it winters. When the next spring comes, there are two things that could happen. That bird could head north to breed right away, the first year that it's able to, like a one-year-old bird. Or it could not go north to breed and stay in its wintering grounds all year long. Okay, and so there's sometimes a bird might do that if it's just, if it's, you know, if its chances of breeding successfully in its first year are low because it's, I don't know, doesn't have as much experience or it didn't put on as much um, body mass, you know, it, it wasn't able to eat as much as the adults because it wasn't as good at finding food or something. It might be more beneficial for a juvenile bird to just hang out for a year, get experience, eat a lot, and then not try until its second year to breed. Right, but that has a cost, which is that you have one fewer brood in your life. And you have to survive for a whole nother year exactly. without any chance to breed. So so it's not a no-cost strategy. Yeah. So that's another proxy they use. Presumably, the best option would be if you're in good enough condition that you can breed your first year. That's that's the ideal thing. Right, exactly. Because the the maximum fitness would be to breed as soon as you're able. The earlier you're able, the better. Um, and then the third proxy they looked at is the timing of northward passage through the final staging ground in Iceland. So as birds migrate northward towards their breeding grounds again, they use stopover habitat or staging sites to kind of like, you know, fuel up and rest before they make each leap of the journey. And there's a, a notable staging site in Iceland that many of these Greenland breeders use before they get to Greenland. And the reasoning behind this one is that presumably there's some competition on the breeding grounds. And so the earlier you get to the breeding grounds, the better your chances for breeding. You can get the best nest site. You also get an earlier start. And the breeding season is very short in the north. So the earlier you can start, the better. So there's a real benefit to being on the breeding grounds early in the summer rather than getting there late. Right. And so I think in some ways, to me, this is the most intuitive measure yeah, of, I agree. of fitness success because a bird that passes through Iceland early is going to get to the breeding grounds early and it's going to have all other things being equal, a better breeding year, probably. A bird that's passing through Iceland late is already behind. It's already unlikely to breed as successfully. Right, sure. So the question is, does having a, a really long distance migration mean that you necessarily arrive late to the breeding grounds or could you still get there in time to get a good spot? So if we go back to the, the question this study's asking, the conventional wisdom would be that this, these birds that have to fly really far to get to a wintering site, presumably the reason they would do that is because the food's better. So, so if you're flying from Greenland to Scotland, it's not very far, so you don't have much cost, but maybe the food isn't that good, and so you're not ready to go back to the breeding grounds right away. You have to hang out and keep eating. If you fly all the way, you know, to somewhere in Africa, 
it's a much costlier migration, but maybe if the food's much better, then you can spend a short time in Africa, you get all stocked up, and then you're ready to go. And so you can start heading back to the breeding grounds before the birds in Scotland can. And so then it all sort of evens out where the birds in Scotland, the birds from Africa, all get there about the same time. Right. That would be a sort of balance in the cost and the benefits of this. Yep. And I think, I mean, I th so I think we should s jump straight to the result here because this measure, I think, is the easiest to understand, this timing of the passage through Iceland. Yep. So if you think, well, if you're looking at the article, look at figure one with this map here. So they've got a map of the entire coast of Europe and Africa, where all these birds are. But if you're not looking at a map, just sort of in your mind, divide up the world into three chunks. You have the, the birds that stay in northern Europe, Scotland and France and things like this. Then you have the middle birds that are in sort of northern Africa around the equator. And then you have the southern band, these birds in the very southern tip of Africa in Namibia down there. Now we're talking about the, the time in which these birds come through Iceland heading to the breeding grounds. What they found is that the birds from northern Europe, from like the UK and Scotland, the time that those birds get to Iceland and the time that the birds from the very southern tip of Africa get to Iceland is the same. It's about the same, yeah. Which is totally wild <laughs> to yeah. me. Some of these birds are flying an extra 13,000 kilometers one way and they still get there at the same time as these Scotland right, birds. Right, exactly. Which suggests that, that flying to Namibia has some pretty enormous benefits. Like you just end up being able to fuel very efficiently if you can make that kind of flight twice and still get back to the breeding grounds at the same time as the birds from Ireland and Scotland and England. Yeah. However, these birds from the middle, from the equator there, from northern Africa, they get to Iceland later. Yeah. By, by many days. I mean, 10 days or something, I think, right? Let me. Let yeah, me I can't remember. I think 10 days is about right. Yeah, five or ten days later. So that is peculiar. And this is not in line with the sort of common wisdom. The common wisdom, like the common accepted thing, is what we find between those UK and the Southern Africa birds, that whatever the costs are of that migration, they're sort of balanced by some benefits of really good conditions on the wintering ground. And so at the start of the next breeding season, things are about even. Right. So this is the, the kind of first line of evidence that's suggesting that maybe the benefits on the wintering grounds around the equator are not worth the trip. Yeah, I mean, it, it sort of begs the question, why are these birds flying all the way to the middle of Africa instead of stopping in Scotland? You know, like, it, I mean, that's the thing, that the chances for these birds would be better if they'd stopped in northern Europe. Sure. So what's going on? That doesn't seem like it should be possible. There, there's, you can't think of a reason that would be happening. Yeah. And it turns out that once you start to look at the other fitness proxies, you see that uh, that same story, that Namibia and Europe are uh, roughly similar in terms of adult survival rate and the age of first northward migration. But the wintering sites around the equator in Ghana and West Africa are have, have notably lower adult survival rates and many juveniles stay put for their first winter. Right, so all- for, th for, for their first breeding season, excuse me. So all three of these metrics are pretty much pointing to the same story, which is that the fitness is higher for the birds that are in 
high latitudes, even if that high latitude is crossing the equator and going all the way really far south to yeah. the southern tip of Africa. And so what it suggests is that the distance that something flies in the migration is not actually perfectly balanced by the cost. These, these birds that fly really far to southern Africa can do better than the birds that fly a shorter distance to the middle of Africa. Yep. So I just want to return very briefly. They, they've got such a nice, clear study question here, a clear hypothesis that we all thought was true. They've got the data to test it. And so now we've got the evidence to find out, is that hypothesis true? So I'm just going to read you the first sentence of their discussion. In contrast to our prediction of equal survival and timing of migration across the large non-breeding range, we found that sanderlings from wintering areas in West Africa had lower adult survival delayed first northward migration and later passage through their last staging site in Iceland. So this is like the, the best, I, I just love it when there's such a nice, clear <laughs> test of a hypothesis. Like they really, it's very clear what they're testing. It's easy to understand. Yeah. If our accepted knowledge is correct, we should find equal survival and equal timing. Right. If everything's balanced. And they distinctly did not they find that. They distinctly did that. And what that means, I mean, this is when people talk about disproving or falsifying hypotheses in science, this is exactly it. Yeah. We've got something that we think is true. We find evidence that definitely is in conflict with that. And so now we're in a new situation here. We don't know what is true, but we know for sure that something we used to think is not true. Right. Okay. So this is, I think, where sometimes science can get a little... Uh, frustrating or hard to understand for people. It's easy, you know, we can prove that something is not true. It's not easy to prove that something is true. Right. It's like you have to disprove all the alternatives and leave the truth standing, basically. <laughs> right. Now, that's not usually useful. This process of disproving alternatives is not useful if you don't really think the alternatives are true. Mm -hmm. You know, it, there, there's no point in disproving things that are obviously wrong anyway, because that doesn't really get us anywhere. But this, what this study did, is valuable. When you, can, when you can cast into doubt something that we all thought was true before, now you've really changed our understanding of the world. We, we have to revisit this idea with a new mindset here. So then my obvious next question is like, are West African sanderlings just in the process of being selected out? <laughs> Yeah, right. I mean, because that's sort of the implication. If we were to come back in 100 years or 200 years, if this result holds consistent, we right. would expect that that population of the West African sandlings has maybe disappeared. Right, or... exactly. We expect that because it's no longer beneficial or breaking even with other migration destinations, that the birds who migrated to West Africa don't exist anymore, outcompeted by other birds with better fitness. So I would say, I mean, I think they, they talk about this a bit in the discussion. We'll get into all this. But I would say the basic thing that you have to think about, you've got a study, you've got a test, and now, Ellie, you have just sort of said the obvious implication. You know, are these birds from the middle of Africa on the way out? Yeah. They decline. What you have to immediately ask yourself is, how generalizable is this test? Hmm. And by that, I mean... This test tested a, a very specific population at a very specific time, seven years between 2007 and 2013. Is this little test they did representative of the bigger truth, whatever that bigger truth is? So we've got a, a big population of sanderlings, so 
it's sort of is true for the population. But what we have is kind of a limited snapshot in time. Yeah. So what if there are some cycles that happen on a period of bigger than seven years? I mean, I think a really crude way to a really crude sort of analogy is what if I did a study where I measured how hungry people are at nine in the morning and then I measured how hungry people are at 11.30, right before their lunch break. And I said, look, people are getting hungrier and hungrier over this time. These people are about to starve to death. Sure, and then you assume that the, the trend in hunger between 9 and 11.30 is a trend that will continue indefinitely because that's the only snapshot you've got. But it turns out I just sampled a really small window of time and the, t the time that I studied wasn't long enough to capture a cycle. Actually, in my hunger thing, there's a cycle where people are going to eat at noon and their hunger is going to go down again. Then they'll get hungry again for a couple hours, then they'll eat again. So there's a cycle, but my study didn't catch it. So that's the first thing I kind of want to ask myself with this is, are these seven years representative or is there some sort of a cycle that's not long enough for us to catch it yet? Sure. Is there Have there been like aberrant weather conditions in West Africa for the last seven years, but but over time things will stabilize in some way? Yeah. So that's that's a possibility that West Africa is worse now, but at other times it's actually better and it sort of swings back and forth and so you have a balance there. So that's yeah, one possibility. That does seem possible. I feel like because they have authors from West Africa on the study, there might have been discussion of that in the discussion section if they thought that was a real possibility. Well, but yeah, I, maybe. I don't know. I mean, I, I don't know anything about the weather patterns no, or anything like that. But, I don't either. Um, but the point is you just have to start looking for ways in which you, you have to ask, does this study actually get at the the truth that I'm interested in? And if we're talking about the evolution of populations <clears throat> and the survival of populations, we're that is a process that takes place over long periods of time. Yeah, seven years is a really, really short little snapshot within the, the scale of evolution, natural selection. Okay, so so that's one question that pops into my mind. Now, some of the issues that they talk about in here, I mean, it, obviously, it is the case that these birds are going to West Africa, but they're not being as successful. So how... How is it that this is happening? Why haven't these birds already disappeared? One possibility is that individuals who are in worse shape end up in worse areas, essentially. Because they lose some sort of competition, yeah, essentially. Exactly. Um, and so everybody who's who's in better shape gets the good spots. And uh, if you lose the game, you got to go to West Africa. <laughs> so, so this is basically just saying, like, just because it looks... Like there are some losers doesn't mean that there are not losers. <laughs> right? I mean, right. it, it looks like we have a bunch of birds that are being forced into an area or that are in an area where they're having really low success. Maybe they have had to go to that area because they aren't able to compete for the good areas. Right, exactly. And their success will be lower. And, and so they are sort of, I mean, it could be that there is sort of a selection mechanism there. The birds that can't compete for the good areas go to these lower quality areas after they've gone there, they're lower fitness, and they're less successful, and they're sort of losing. I mean, that's... Right. It's kind of... It becomes a cycle then where lower fitness birds end up in lower productivity areas and whatever. Now, there's, there's the possibility that 
um, those birds won't be lower fitness for their whole lives. So maybe it's first-year birds. I mean, one of the things they tested for in this study is whether there was a difference between juveniles and adults at these sites. So if you had a site that was a bunch of first-year birds and very few older birds, that would kind of be a little evidence that maybe the first-year birds who can't compete as well have to go to this not very good site. Once they get older and get more experience, then they can compete at some of the better sites. So it could be sure. there's a subordinate age population. It could be that there's one of the sexes is kind of not as, as able to compete. And so you have either the males or the females kind of get displaced to these lower quality habitats. They also tested for that here. They, they yeah, tested they whether the, the sex ratios were different. They, they didn't, were not, right? No, they didn't find any differences really in the sex ratios or in the age ratios, except for one kind of small exception. But I don't think it, they didn't seem worried about that. So that suggests if it is subordinate, like a, a, a certain category of birds in the population that's subordinate and getting pushed to these lower areas, we couldn't see that here. Right. It's not based on their age. It doesn't seem to be based on their sex. Yeah, so maybe that's not the best explanation. Maybe, though, there's a group of birds that is in poorer condition, not based on their age or their sex, but just based on being poorer condition. And maybe they're forced into the bad area in the middle of Africa. Yep. But these authors say in their discussion section, so they, they say here, uh, based on the examination of annual cycles of shorebirds, it was concluded earlier, they're talking about some, some other study that they cite, that there's little support for the idea that subordinate individuals are forced south by competition. Thus, we consider it unlikely that sanderlings of relatively poor overall condition end up in West Africa. So here what they're saying is, based on other things, other studies, we don't think that poor condition sanderlings get displaced into, into different locations. I think that based on the results of the study that we're talking about today, this is another one of those statements that would sort of be prime for revisiting. What they have here is they're saying, here's something that we already know. We know that low-quality sandalings don't get pushed out. And so we're pretty sure that's not what's happening here. But this is another thing where you can say, well, so here's something that we already thought, but is it time to revisit that, get better evidence than maybe those previous studies had, because maybe this can be falsified. Yeah, that's possible. Yeah. Yeah, sure. Why I mean, not? <laughs> this, is, this is the cycle of... of falsifying hypotheses. You can't ever prove something's true, but you sort of take all the things that you think are true and you test them. And one of the, when one of those breaks down, then you have to look for other explanations. One of the other explanations is that some of these other things that we thought were true are also actually wrong. And this, this could be one that we're wrong about. Maybe this idea that the low quality sandalings don't get pushed out is wrong. And if we re revisit that, we discover that we had just missed that before in the same way we had had missed the results of this study before. Yeah, that's an interesting point. And I think to some extent that's the purpose of a discussion section is that these authors say, okay, given what we've learned here, here we're gonna sort of lay out all the things that we think we know. And the reason you would lay this out in discussion is because these are all things that maybe it's worth time thinking about and retesting because we think we know them, but the story doesn't quite add up yet. Right. I mean, every study, for every study, there are 
at least 10 more studies <laughs> that you could do that would either support that study or test an, another little piece of, of the hypothesis or whatever. Yeah, and I think in discussion sections, part of what authors do in a discussion is they lay out a bunch of questions that, that maybe they think are the most important next ones to test. They might be planning to test those themselves or sure. they're hoping someone else will look at it, but it's sort of their opportunity to lay out a bunch of things and say, you know, this is, this is what we think we know, but this is what we think we might need to retest. Yeah. Or they can sort of say, well, we think we know it, but, but we're pretty sure. But again, that's sort of a, an assumption or a claim, and someone else could, could look at this discussion section and find these sorts of statements and say, okay, here's a statement. This is a testable statement. Right. I mean, that's, that's the best kind of thing when you can have a statement and it's a testable one. Yeah. Yeah. But beyond whatever the authors think about, you know, individuals getting pushed out of this area, another possibility for why these West African birds are, are seem to be doing worse is that the sandrilling population has been growing. And so maybe the West African population is like an overflow population from sandrillings at sites that already reach their carrying capacity. So like all the good sites in Europe fill up as birds migrate south and then sandrillings that, that don't get those good sites end up in West Africa. Yeah, so there, it, they do say that there seems to have been a uh, recent increase in the sandling population, especially some areas of, of Europe. So one possibility is that, you know, Ellie, you had asked, does this study mean that these West African birds are declining? Right. That they're disappearing? It's possible, yes, they are disappearing, but they're being replaced by overflow birds from the good areas so quickly that there's still birds in West Africa. Sure, that doesn't, yeah. The, this doesn't say anything about the sandrilling population. We're just talking about West Africa as a staging site. Yeah, and in terms of asking the question, how is it possible there still exist birds that winter in South Africa when that seems West to be... West Africa. I'm sorry, yes, in West Africa when that seems to be a poor strategy. Well, it could be that there's still birds that exist that way because they're just being replaced faster than they can die out. There's basically. just so many of them. Yeah. Um, and this is something that I think people think about a lot at, at multiple scales, even at very small scales on the wintering grounds or something. You might look at a an area in your hometown or your county, and there are some places that look like really good nest sites. And then there are places, well, I remember uh, there are American robins where we used to be in Wisconsin that had their nests in terrible, terrible places, like just very yeah. clearly in view, very close to the ground. I guarantee you every bird or every egg those birds laid got eaten by a raccoon or something. Sure. There's just no way or they managed. hit with a lawnmower or yeah, whatever. They yeah. absolutely didn't raise any chicks. Yeah. That's a, a terrible reproductive strategy. How is it that that reproductive strategy is surviving? Well, maybe those are just the birds that are overflow extra birds. There's so many robins hatching from the good areas, the nice bits of whatever they like nice bits of bush and and there's not enough good nest sites to go around so you sort of get these overflow birds that lay their eggs right in the middle of your lawn you hit them with your lawnmower and they don't raise any kids but they're still there because they're just overflow that can happen at very small scales in a in a backyard but it could also be happening at continental type scales here and that's what these authors 
suggest is one possible explanation for this. Yep. But what the authors think is actually the explanation is that West Africa is ecologically compromised somehow. Yeah, they think there's there's something going on there that makes it so the birds can't refuel as well. Yeah. The birds wintering farther south, the very southern tip in Namibia or in northern Europe, are refueling really successfully during the winter, and then they're ready to go back to the breeding site, and they hit Iceland early in the season. Yeah. But that's not happening in West Africa, and these authors suspect that that's because of, of ecological decline, that historically West Africa might have been more of a successful refuel location, but it's not now for whatever reason. Do they say that? Oh, maybe they don't. I don't think they say that, but I mean, I think you're right. There's an implicit suggestion that this is a decline. Because yeah, if, they don't say that explicitly, though. You're right. If West Africa had been a poorer place for hundreds or thousands of years, then there shouldn't still be a population there. I mean, that, that's this idea that right. if, it if had... it's been terrible, they should have already gone extinct from that area. Yeah, but maybe it would have had to been terrible for a really, really long time, and that time is outside of human memory or documented history of that area. I don't know. Well, so I think there's two possibilities. Number one, the ecological bad conditions in West Africa are recent. So it used to be good, but now it's bad and the population is starting to decline. Or you combine it with one of these previous possibilities we talked about. The conditions have always been bad, but it's a, yeah. an inflow of extra individuals or an inflow of subordinate individuals or something. Sure. One of those two possibilities. Yeah. Um, and I, my reading as you say, is that they're sort of implying that the conditions are sort of recently not as good there, but I don't, they don't say that explicitly and they don't say which possibility it is. They do seem to have some evidence from other studies that actually the food in this area in Ghana is not as good. Yeah, they talk about um, how sanderlings end up having to process more indigestible shell fragments or something in Ghana than they do in other areas, which suggests that they're spending a lot of time getting food that is not going to refuel them as effectively. Yeah, for whatever reason, the, the little invertebrates that they're eating on the beach in Ghana, there's not as much meat for the amount of shell, basically, yeah. <laughs> is what it boils down to. And that could have to do with the species that are there. I mean, that could be something that's been the case for hundreds or thousands of years. I, I really don't know. Yeah, it's interesting. I'm not sure that we've said this explicitly, but the, the difference in adult survival rate that we're talking about is like 10% or something. It's not radical. It's not like no adults survive that, um, or your survival rate is cut to like 25% or something if you winter in West Africa. Yeah, it's lower. It's not hugely lower. And the uncertainties around those estimates were actually kind of large and in some cases overlapping too. So Right, exactly. So that's my question is is I, well, I I'm convinced that they're they've observed a real phenomenon here that fitness from it, fitness is lower from birds that winter in West Africa. But I guess I'm not necessarily convinced that it's not part of that cyclical thing that that you were talking about earlier that this is some some random process that we're sampling a small segment of yeah well i mean i think that that's exactly the situation we we know what's not true they've tested that hypothesis there's a couple possibilities here 
these overflow hypotheses, some sort of a time cycle, some sort of a subordinate individual is going. You also have to keep in mind that they actually didn't measure reproductive success. They measured three proxies for it, adult right. survival, juveniles migrating, and, and time of migrating through Iceland. There's a possibility, unlikely I think, but it's there, that these birds from Central Africa coming through Iceland late still reproduce just as successfully once they do get to Greenland. I don't think that's likely. I don't think it's They're likely getting either. started a week late, but yeah. it's still possible. They haven't tested it. You know, the, the whole thing is you have to look at the things that you haven't tested but assume are true. Yep. And begin addressing those. One of the things they assume is true here is that coming, arriving on the breeding grounds a week late means you're going to be less successful. Yeah. Yeah, so my takeaway from this is is that one, I think this is a phenomenally cool study and study design, being able to sample birds from all these different migration distance wintering populations um, is really neat and use observations from, you know, thousands of observers looking at, at these color bands on these birds. I just love that. Um, but also I think they've they've identified something very interesting here, which is that long-distance migration doesn't necessarily have the benefit that we assume it does. I think that's the key. I mean, if you think about this in terms of, you know, could this study change how ornithology is taught 10 years from now or 20 years from now? I think so, because this is a serious wrinkle. It's always just been assumed that the costs of long migration must be balanced by the benefits. But here we have a system where we know that's not the case. Yep. And so now you have to ask, well, then how, how does this system that we've seen still exist? How can we have these places where birds are flying far to get to the middle, you know, northern Africa, but that's not being compensated by benefits there? And they're sort of on the losing end. I, I think that's the, a real wrinkle into the idea of the reasons behind migration. So if you want to look at this study yourself, maybe look at figure one, that map of the huge two-continental area they, get, they gathered data over. It's very cool. It's very cool. Uh, we'll put the link to the article on the, the webpage, and you can click on it there and, and take a look for yourself. Thanks for listening. The funding for my PhD position comes from a project funded by Science Foundation Ireland. I'm at University College Dublin in the Ecological Modeling Group of John Yearsley. If you want to find out more about our research in the Ecological Modeling Group, you can go to www.ucd.ie/ecomodel.